0: Well, we're back to the Gospel of John. We've had a long hiatus, uh, waiting to get to a time when I could record some more of these. But we are in chapter 8 today. And uh, we begin chapter 8 with some questions. If you look in modern study Bibles, you'll find footnotes that tell you that there's a problem with these verses. It actually begins in the 53rd. It's numbered the 53rd verse of chapter 7 and continues through uh, verse 11 of chapter 8. Those first 11 verses, as well as that last little bit of chapter 7, uh, just a few words says, then each of them went home. Um, uh, these verses don't appear in all the ancient copies of John's Gospel. So you have to understand when the Bible was being prepared, there were several manuscripts that became produced of copies of the original. As far as we know, the original doesn't exist. Um, You know, we don't... We don't have signed copies of the Gospels; they're not there. What we have are old copies, and when you look at um like the Greek New Testament, a lot of the time, if it's got notes, it will tell you the textual evidence of a particular verse or a particular passage and and what it says with this is that there are some pretty dependable sources uh some pretty dependable copies of the gospel of John that leave this story completely out and it even appears sometimes in uh a different uh place and uh so uh sometimes it has appeared in the um gospel of Luke Uh, in early copies of that. Um, So that led to a story that uh, Bible scholars began to tell that um, when John was writing his gospel, there's some evidence that, um, by the way, he kind of mixes the chronology of the events of Jesus' life up that it's almost as though he had pages written and laying near an open window. And a breeze came and stirred those pages up and he went and picked up all he could and and handed it over in that stack without being uh, properly um, syncretized with the other three Gospels. And there's... A lot of scholarship that has been done over the centuries trying to figure out why John has these accounts that no one else has and why they are in the order, the accounts of his narrative of Jesus' life are in the order that they're in. So we come to this story and it's a beautiful story. It's got so much depth and so much uh, preachability to it. And so it's a story that you don't want to, you don't want to throw it out. So, you know, modern Bible translations do note that there are problems with the authenticity of it. So we don't really know if it's Gospel of John, if someone knew the story and added it later. because It might have been edited in um I've been edited out of other versions, but you know, whatever you know, there's there are problems with the story. So we'll we'll let's look at the story and see what it says, and then we'll we'll talk about some of that. It begins with the words. Then each of them went home, while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down. And began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone. And the woman, with the woman standing before him. So Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on do not sin again. Wow, what a story. I mean, what a story. Um... Very much in a Jewish context because Jesus goes to the temple and he sits down to teach them. That's exactly what rabbis did in the days of Jesus and uh, to teach their disciples. And so we don't know who, who they are. It just says people came to him, um, all pe- all the people. So this is not just his disciples that are with him. This is a, a mixed group. It would be some of the Jewish leaders, it would be some of the um you know Pharisees and scribes and uh maybe some of the Romans, maybe some other folks, merchants, uh what have you could have been part of that crowd. And so uh it's interesting that as they begin as he begins teaching, he gets interrupted. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting thing because a lot of the times, uh you when you when you find yourself doing things for the Lord, you're gonna get interrupted. <laughs> we get a plan in our mind of what we're supposed to do, and an interruption will happen. Yeah, I'm scared to death doing this. Podcast Bible study that I'll have someone come to the door, or I'll have a phone call in the middle of it. Of course, I can I can stop it and start it again. I think, but at the same time, you know, just having the interruption can uh, mess with your flow of your thoughts and so forth. And these were the scribes and Pharisees who interrupted Jesus by dragging before him a woman who had been caught adultery. Now think about that. What is this saying? A woman is brought before Jesus who has been caught in the act of adultery. She's probably not put together real well. Uh she probably looks pretty unkept. Um I imagine she probably was kicking and screaming coming before Jesus like that. And how is this a happenstance and how is it a plan of the Jewish leaders as they were trying to figure out some way to bring Jesus down? So here's this person. They're using a person. You know, we have to be careful when we use people. Well, because sometimes in our efforts to prove a point, we end up hurting people. There's there's what we call human collateral. That's a military um, phrase, but it's you know. Collateral damage. There was collateral damage that day, and it was damage done toward this woman. And, uh, you know, best as I know, I was raised in central Appalachia. Um, Not really up a holler, but close to some hollers. And uh, I know uh, my understanding of adultery Without getting too graphic, um, it takes two people. So why did they bring the woman before Jesus? Well, they brought the woman before Jesus because women were not considered on the same level as men in those days. There's some teaching that we can look at in Matthew that where Jesus is talking about divorce, um, that goes into some of the Jewish understanding at that time of how marriages could be ended by simply writing on a piece of paper that you want to divorce someone and standing before them and saying it three times. I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee. And the other piece of that, you know, there was no welfare state. There, was no, there were no resources for a divorced woman. She depended heavily on who, whatever man she was with to provide the things that she needed for herself and for any family that she might have, Children. We don't know anything about this woman other than the fact that they caught her in the act of committing adultery. Now, a man had to be present. Well, well, we live in the 21st century. We we think it was a man. Could have been a woman. um, But more than likely, it was a man. Because in this crowd, as Jesus is hearing what they're saying... There's implications behind what they're saying. Um, The second phrase of verse 3 says, And making her stand before all of them, they said to him. So here they are, not only do they drag her in there, they're making her stand where all eyes are on her. She's pretty vulnerable. At this point, um, there's lots of directions I could go with that. I'm just going to leave it right there. And then they ask this question Teacher or rabbi, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded. So you see, it has nothing. To <laughs> What's going on has nothing to do with this woman. They're ready to stone her. They're coming to Jesus with a question to try and trip him up. Because if they can catch him in false teaching, they have a right to do to him exactly what they're going to do to this woman, which is to publicly stone and kill her. That's the direction they're headed with Jesus. So, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? What do you say? If Jesus says, you don't need to stone her, then he's not upholding the law of Moses. If he says, go ahead, stone her, then that's awfully unmerciful, isn't it? Uh, you know, that part's not much of an argument for the people in that day, but it is for our day especially. Yeah. You know, we we're living in the time of the Me Too movement, when uh misogyny and all those kind of things are are being bannered about as as great sins, sins worthy of canceling someone in our culture. And we've had l we've noticed that a lot of a lot of men have been canceled because of misogynist acts and uh and so forth. Well Jesus has confronted them with this question. And then just in case you didn't think they were doing this with evil intention, John says they said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. So John's very explicit about this. And this is a problem. This this is showing that the religious leaders of that day had an agenda, and it was a not a veiled agenda. It was a very upfront agenda that they wanted to get rid of Jesus. Go back to the first verse of the second verse of this passage. The second sentence, it says, all the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach him. So, they were a little jealous because Jesus had a following. You know, religious leaders sometimes get in these echo chambers where, where they don't hear anything but what they espouse and they become very... um unable to hear what the public thinks. Jesus is out here speaking to the public, teaching them about God and about the kingdom of God and about all that God wants to do in his new covenant and his new kingdom. So what does Jesus do? He bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. (laughs) We don't know what he says. We don't know what he writes. I heard a Christian comedian one time say that uh, he thought Jesus was writing the names of her boyfriends, which might have been men who were right there. And so... When they kept on questioning him, it says in verse 7, he straightened up and said to them, let any one among you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now that's interesting. Jesus is upholding the law of Moses, but he's also going a step farther. In other words, he's agreeing that this is sin, but then he's saying sin is universal. And her sin's no worse than anyone else's. So those without sin can stone her. Or what are they going to do? Well, once again, he bends down and writes on the ground, as verse 8 says. Some ancient authorities, some texts say at the end of verse 8 that he wrote down the sins of each of them. The sins of each of them. So instead of just writing their names and implying that they were her boyfriends, he's writing down their sins. And it's convicting them. Because Jesus had the advantage over them of the power of the Holy Spirit which convicts us of our sin convinces us of our guilt and creates the opportunity for us to repent and believe in the good news and have our sins forgiven but they don't know any of that they don't know the Holy Spirit but I bet they felt the convicting power as Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. Let me ask you something. If Jesus was going to bend down and write on the ground in front of you, what would he write? What would be the thing that he would write that would cause you the most conviction? That's an interesting thought. Paul will later say in the New Testament, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the word Paul uses for sin, amartia, means missing the mark. You know, aiming at something but missing it. It's an interesting understanding of sin. Another way of thinking about sin is sin is anything that gets between us and God anything that alters our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So whatever Jesus wrote on the ground, and we really don't know the effect of it after he said, whoever is without sin may cast the first stone. It said, when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Isn't that interesting? Now, Jesus knows how to clear a room, doesn't he? You know, they go away one by one. Very interesting. Interesting. And then Jesus is left alone with this woman. Now that harkens back, doesn't it, to chapter 4? When Jesus is with the woman of Samaria and the disciples come back and find him with her and they actually chide him for being alone with her. Not just because it's a woman and they're unsupervised, but because she was a woman who had been married five times and was living with, Someone in some ways, it makes you wonder if John is pulling these two stories together in some way. Could this be the same woman? We don't know. There's really no way of knowing, but what happened is says Jesus straightened up and said to her, "Woman, where are they??" using the same word for woman, gune, that it was used in chapter 2 when he's talking to his mother. His mother said, do something about them running out of wine. And he says, woman, what is that to me? My time has not yet come. And he calls his own mother gune. It's kind of, kind of got a derogatory edge to it. It's not it's not derogatory but it's got that edge to it and here he stands before this woman and says woman where are they has no one condemned you and she says no one sir this is this is almost like a court scene and Jesus is a judge and there is a person being brought before the judge with charges But now there's no prosecuting attorney. Prosecuting attorneys left the room. so The judge says, has no one condemned you? And the response is, no one. And so Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now, I hope you understand what Jesus is doing. When he asks her where her accusers are, and she says they're they're not here. Jesus then responds with total and complete mercy. And maybe you stood before a judge and wished you could get mercy, thrown yourself upon the mercy of the court. That's what this woman did. She threw herself upon the mercy of the court. And Jesus, the judge, said... Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Now, I hope you listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You and I are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what the Bible says. It's appointed once for a man to die and afterward the judgment. And we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will be condemned of our sins. We will be accused and condemned. And we should be bound for eternity in hell. But you know what's going to happen? if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, he's going to say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the judgment he will proclaim on us because it is his very nature to extend mercy toward us. And were it not for the mercy of almighty God, we would, every one of us, be bound for an eternity in hell. That's the truth as I know it today. I can't make it any clearer. My invitation to you is really the invitation of the Scripture is to believe in the one who wants to give you mercy, who wants to transform your life, so that even if your accuser is present, he is willing to extend mercy. Jesus is willing to extend mercy and say to you, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's, what, that's the punch of this story. And that's why I'm so happy that even though the evidence was not good for this story to be a part of the Gospel of John. It made it, it, made it in, the, in the body of this gospel because we need this story to be reminded of the nature and character of Jesus whose character that day was being called into question by the religious leaders of his day. the people who followed him saw through that and they knew that here was a source of mercy that was a bomb for our souls. And Jesus has the ability to wipe the slate clean for us, to forgive us because I'm going to tell you, One of the things that the Bible tells us about heaven is that no sin will enter there. So we have to have our sin cleansed, removed, forgiven. And Jesus does that with the merciful giving of himself upon the cross. If you... thought about something today when I asked what would Jesus write on the ground about you? I want to remind you he can wipe the slate clean. All you have to do is ask him to forgive you. Let's pray this prayer together. Dear Lord, I'm a sinner, but I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. I want to be made a new creature in you. And as you granted mercy to this woman that was dragged before you by the religious leaders of her day, so grant mercy to me that I may have a new life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to know God has forgiven you. And you have new life in Him. Find yourself a community of believers and praise God with them as you live into this new relationship where mercy is free. If you need to contact me for anything, my email address is Pastor Brad Scott with two T's, Pastor Brad Scott at gmail.com. This has been another episode of our Gospel of John podcast Bible study. Tune in for the next time. We'll see you later. Bye bye.